just came out of um, uh, something I uh, just felt an impression from the Lord about how Jesus called John. Um, in um, Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus meets uh, Peter, he's fishing, he's casting his nets. And, but when he meets John and calls him to follow him, he's mending his nets, preparing them. And both are vital and part of the ministry of, of the church. And, um, but I just felt that that was just a word at the time for us as we began to gather again to be mending our nets. And we're so grateful that we have the Bible in our hands or on our phone or on screen or whatever um, because we want to be that word, people of the word and people of the spirit. Just the spirit, we will lack the truth. Just the word, we will lack the amazing gifts of his grace. So we want to have both together. And when we read, say, a letter from John, you know, he is a witness to Jesus. He was walking with Jesus he knows him very well, and he is that apostolic witness, and that's why it's so important that we be a people of the word, because that, that has been handed down 2,000 years. It has not changed, and that is the apostolic witness. We're, we're, we are so grateful to have it. It speaks of truth. And um, for John particularly, that ministry of mending nets worked out in his writing ministry. Peter didn't write much. He wrote a couple of letters. But John wrote the gospel. And he writes that almost as an evangelist, doesn't he? Because he says at the end, I write these things that you might believe in Jesus. But he's also writing it as someone who knows Jesus and is discipling us in what Jesus said and what he did and what it meant. And then he writes the book of Revelation. That's the last thing he writes. He's in, in exile on Patmos, and he has this amazing vision of God. And, you know, we're all not sure quite what it all means. You know, I've only met a couple of people who think they know what it means, and they don't. And, <laughs> but it, it is written to a church under so much pressure, persecution. When, and when you know that background, you know you can decipher some of the things that um, John uses, sort of, you know, code words like the dragon and the beast and Babylon and things like that. But in the letters that he writes, he writes as a pastor. They're pastoral. And he writes to instruct the believers. And summing up, and we'll get to the end of the, the letter uh, in a few weeks' time, I write these things to you who believe. So he's not writing to unbelievers. He writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And why he writes that you may know these things because there was pressure coming around the church. Yes, persecution, but also pressure from um, other teachers that were around the early church that were beginning to say, well, actually, you know, you might want to look at it a different way. You know, we don't really need Jesus, do we? We, you know, perhaps we, if we just have lots of knowledge, we, we, that'll be okay. And John has to write and says, no, this is the apostolic witness. So today's talk I've called, The World is Not Enough. And so it comes from 1 John, if you want to follow it in your own Bible or um, it'll be on the screen as well. Thanks, Sarah. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. 
Jesus. I'm writing to you fathers and mothers, obviously, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men and women because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers and mothers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men and women, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The world is not enough. Those of you who are James Bond fans will know that title comes from a film. The new one is out apparently soon. It was delayed by the pandemic. That's the 25th in the Bond series, No Time to Die. But back in 1999, that's how long ago it was, the 19th film in the series, The World is Not Enough, was released. So I wanted to take that as a title, or you could take as What's Wrong with the World. One of John's favorite words, if you read his gospel, just read chapter 1, or read this passage again, one of the favorite words that he uses is cosmos. It's the Greek word for world. And he uses it more than all the other New Testament writers put together. He loves using that word, cosmos, the world. But what does that mean? And he uses it in his gospel and his letters in different ways. There's a positive way that he uses it. Talking about the universe, the planet, the human race. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So we should love the world, shouldn't we? If God loves the world, we should love the world. And it's perfect. He made it, and he said it was good. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Then why does he say, do not love the world? Because he uses the word cosmos in a negative way as well. So, for example, 1 John 5, verse 19, further on in this letter, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And he's talking about the life of society organized under the power of the evil one, the devil. The influence of the devil over the world, which he sees as hostile to God. Hostile to Jesus. Hostile to the church. And therefore, it's no wonder that we can sometimes get confused. Are we to love the world or are we to hate the world? Well, both. 
bearing in mind that there is a positive and a negative. John Stott, when he worked with um, students, he uh, felt that he had met some Christians who were confused about this, so they withdrew from the world. He wasn't talking about monks and monasticism in in a way. He was working with students at the time, and he called them rabbit hole Christians. Because he said they dashed from one Christian burrow to another, avoiding the world in between. Ghetto Christianity. But he saw on the other spectrum among the students other Christians who got so enmeshed in the world that it was difficult to tell them apart as believers in Christ from everyone else around them. John also has a third meaning for the word cosmos, and I think it's where we find ourselves in this passage. He describes the world as a battlefield in which all our true natures and spiritual states are revealed. It picks up that kind of theme of Jesus in John 17 when he talks about being in the world, but not of the world. So you need to know those kind of distinctions. He uses world in a positive way, for God so loved the world. He uses it in a negative way, that the world influenced by the evil one, and then he uses it in another way and says this is a battleground, a battlefield. But that's, I believe, where our verses land us today. Do not love the world or anything in the world. And he writes to the church. He addresses them, and and he addresses them in different groups. Children, fathers and mothers, young people. I don't think that he's actually writing to the creche or the junior church. I don't think he's doing that. I think that the, the children and the Uh, Parents, as it were, and the young people describe people's maturity in Christ. So, children, young Christians, new Christians, babes in Christ, they experience, as you will have experienced when you came to know Jesus, the amazing forgiveness of all your sin. That you have been washed clean. That Jesus on the cross took all your sin and dealt with it. It it does not stand against you. You have been forgiven. And they know the love of the Father. That's another one of the glorious things. When you become a Christian, you take that step of faith, you suddenly are aware, and sometimes physically, tangibly, that you are loved. It wells up from within you. It's the witness of the Holy Spirit that you are children of God, a son and daughter of the living God. There's nothing quite like it. Remember that time when you took that step of faith and you realized you were forgiven, you were saved for eternity. And you were loved, you were a child of God. Then he addresses fathers, mothers, parents. These are the mature believers You could say these are the ones who've seen it all. They've known him from the beginning. And I guess there were maybe just a few left 
reading John's letter who had known him from the beginning. John knew him from the beginning. He's walked with Jesus probably, I don't, we're not sure, about 60 years. Hands up if you've walked with Jesus for 60 years or more. He's, talk, he's dressing you guys, I guess. I call you gems when I talk about you. You've known him from the beginning, and you've walked with him over many years, and you can testify that over all those years he has been faithful. All those years he has been good. All those years he has never let you down. There's a depth of wisdom over those many years of faithful witness. And we're grateful. I could name you here in the church, the ones I call gems. I won't embarrass anybody. But if you go way back, way back when we first came, Alice Benfield was one of those. She was a gem. She just had a heart for God and it just got bigger and bigger as she got older and older. Young men and women. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's, well, I, well where do I fit in? You know, I'm, I'm not one of your gems because, you know, I've walked with Jesus all that time. Actually, this is you. If you're not a babe in Christ and if you're not one who's walked all those years, this is you. Sometimes you feel a bit older, but this is you. And you are warriors, fighters. You are discovering, if you haven't already discovered, that you are in a spiritual battle. You are discovering that God is calling you to get stuck in, to get involved, particularly in leadership. And sometimes in the church, in these days that we live in, we're looking to the gems for leadership, and they are great at leading, but God is asking the whole of us to get involved. I'm not saying to the gems you can hang up your apron and do all that, but you know you can if you want to, but you're involved still. I know that you're involved in that battle. But we all need to pile in. And he says, God's word lives in you. You're the ones who have overcome the evil one. So what should our attitude to the world be? We're all involved in this battle. To them, all of them, he says, do not love the world. So we have victory in Christ. We know that. That's assured over the enemy. But it doesn't make the fighting any less fierce. The battle is still raging. Although the victory is assured. The enemy is defeated, but he is still at work. We see that. So he poses all of them the question. This is what John's asking. Who or what are you living for? How are you living? Because it matters. There were some who were um, getting inside the early church, the early Gnostics and others who were saying, it doesn't matter how you live. It's just the spiritual that you need to look after. And John says, no, it, it matters. Because how you live tells the who you're living for. 
How you live tells the who you are living for. It reveals where your affections lie. In this passage, he's dealing with the fleeting pleasures of this world or the eternal life which is promised in Christ. If we love heaven, we will not become too attached to the temporary things of the world. Those who truly know God and his promises can see that this fallen world is a, you can liken it to a failed bank. Why would you invest in it? One of John's themes throughout the letter is that God is light and in him there is no darkness. It's so important. Whenever you see darkness, God's not the cause of that. Because there is no darkness in him. He is light. And we are called as those who believe in him to live in the light and to walk in the light. And discipleship means we're called to that battle. But he has already reminded us in his letter and will do that even if we temporarily fall or we struggle with the temptations that the world brings at us, we have a way back always. Because he has died for us, forgiven us. All we need to do is turn to him and know once again his love, his grace, his forgiveness. It's keeping that relationship with him vital. I guess the question John's asking is, whose side are we on? If we love God, he says, we cannot love the world. It, remember, it's the negative sense of the world. We love the world because we love everybody that he's made, and we want everyone to be saved. And we love the planet, and we want to take care of it. But we do not love the world that is in the hands of the enemy that is hostile to God. The two are incompatible. You cannot love both the world and God. It's like when Jesus said, you, you can't love, you know, money, wasn't it? Love God and money. You cannot have two masters, as it were. I think that's what he's getting at here. Who's the master? One is eternal, he says, one is passing away. This is John's direct command. Do not love the world. James, if you read the book of James, he goes a step further. He says friendship with the world is hatred towards God. James chapter 4, verse 4. Because the danger, I guess the danger is not us loving the world as believers. I, I don't think, you know, we're going to say, oh, I'm just going to love all the evil in the world. I'm just going to love the darkness. That's not where we're going to end up. What he sees as the danger, I think, is compromise with the world. Surely the world's not all that bad, is it? Isn't God just a spoil sport, just out to say, well, you, you know, these are the things that you cannot enjoy? What's so wrong with the world? Remembering that John sees that aspect of the world that is influenced by the evil one. And if you want pictures of that, just watch the news. Where the enemy is at work. 
Sometimes it's obvious, but other times it's far more subtle. The battle for our affections, for our loyalty. The world can be deceptive in its attraction. And John defines in verse 16 a little more clearly for us what it means by the things that are in the world. And he calls them the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are not from God. They are of a fallen world. You can put human beings in the most perfect setting and environment, and they might spoil it. Invariably, we do. (laughs) The story of Adam and Eve. They were in a perfect place. They were allowed every freedom except just one. They could eat of any fruit in the garden. Everything was available to them but one. One tree. And the enemy comes and says, surely God doesn't mean that. He's just spoil sport. And he tempts Eve, if you read the account, to look. Firstly, not trust God, but secondly, to look. And of course, it looks really pleasing to the eye. How delightful the fruit of that tree. See the deception. Or whether it's others you can think of in the Bible, Achan in the Old Testament, the Battle of Jericho, Joshua and all that. If you read the account, he seized the plunder and God said, you can't have it. He seized the plunder and he says, I want some of that. It's the lust of the eyes. It's covetousness. And he grabs it and he hides it in his tent and it brings disaster on the people of God. And he has to be exposed, and it doesn't end great for Achan. Can you think of other people? David, King David, the shepherd boy who becomes a king, that worshiper who's got a heart after God's own heart. There's a time when he doesn't go to battle, and he probably should have done. And he doesn't know what to do himself, and he's walking on the roof, and he looks over, and he sees Bathsheba on a rooftop bathing. She shouldn't be doing that either, really, but that's beside the point. He looks. Okay? But then he says, I want... And then he says, I must have. And that's how the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes work. We look, we still have a choice. And then the temptation comes to not look, but want, and then must have. We're all tempted. Jesus was tempted, but without sin. He's our all-sufficient Savior. And Jesus talked about this in a different way. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. It's from within, out of the heart, that evil thoughts come. Immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, all these things, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. 
These come from inside and defile a person. Mark Twain said, the human is the only animal with the capacity to blush and the only one who needs to. Are our affections set on the world and all that that offers? Bearing in mind John's criterion, criteria for that, or the Lord. It's impossible to love both. One is dependent on God and the other seeks independence from God. One leads to freedom and one leads to slavery. And ironically, independence from God leads to slavery. The world would see it the other way around, but God sees it as independence from Him leads to slavery. But dependence upon Him leads to freedom. And this is how it still works. The world under the influence of the evil one seeks to deceive and attract, destroy, divert, divide. It panders to the cravings of sinful human beings, to our appetites, to want what we see, to satisfy ourselves. And the world would promise us everything. The world, with the enemy behind it, would promise freedom and liberty, but only deliver slavery and imprisonment and a lost eternity. We know that anyone controlled by cravings or self-indulgence is not free. We know that. We know that the addict, whatever that may be, is not free, but enslaved. And that includes the pride of life, he says. Pride of life. What does that mean? Sort of that boastfulness. Reminded of a phrase, the self-made man who worships his creator. You have to think about that. The self-made man who worships his creator who is himself, isn't it? Who needs God? That boastful statement, I don't need God. Now, I know when people say it, they don't know what they're saying. I understand that. But where's that coming from? Where's the root of that? I don't need God. From someone who wants to keep them lost. And without hope in this world. Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. John lived at a time when the church was under pressure, under threat, from within, without, persecution physically, persecution in more subtle ways, to compromise, to conform to the world. John lived at a time when debauchery and violence were often regarded as entertainment, Things are so different in the 21st century, aren't they? We wouldn't regard those things as entertainment. The temptations are the same. The enemy tactics have not changed. If we love the world, we cannot love the Father. 
If we ally ourselves to the world, we'll end up as enemies of God. And then John ends with this positive alternative. The world is passing away. It's doomed. Like the darkness, when the light comes, it will vanish. And although there may be a battle right now, the darkness never overcomes the light. Never. And however dark it may seem, in your own experience or when you look upon the world, you know that the light, which is Jesus, the light of the world, has conquered the world. And he is coming back. What is the will of God? To believe in the one he has sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. We boast not in ourselves, not in the world, but we boast in Jesus Christ. And we can say the world is not enough. The Lord is enough. Amen? Let's just pray together.